you're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. We're your hosts, Brandon and Daniela, and this is episode 19. I have been experimenting with a new grain, not really a grain, but another SCOBY, and uh, it's ginger beer plant. You familiar with that? Not really. No, not except for what I've told you about it. And you didn't tell me very much. Okay. So it's a mystery to you as well. It's kind of a mystery to me. Not that familiar with it, but the grains that I received look very similar to water kefir grains. So they have that kind of clear crystal gelatin type structure of bacteria and yeast, a symbiotic colony of bacteria and yeast. And it's interesting because I guess it used to be rather popular. Where? In Europe and the United States and Canada. And, you know, but that was back in the 18th century that it started to be in, in incorporated into to Britain and the United States and Canada, like I said. And, um, and it was very popular in the 20th century. And then it just pretty much disappeared. It's much more underground, I guess you could say. But it's, it's very interesting. I mean, I guess it's kind of like water kefir has been through different cultures, something, I mean, Mexico and otherwise, but it's not necessarily something that's really focused on, but it's one of those things that I hadn't even, I wasn't even that familiar with. And sometimes it's even sold online as being, um, water kefir is sold as ginger beer plant because unsuspecting consumers may purchase it and pay more than they would need to otherwise, but you can get it for free too. How can you get a water kefir grain sold as a ginger grain? They look so similar, but they don't taste similar. They do. I mean, you can, you can brew sugar water the same way you brew sugar water and water kefir. You can do that with the ginger beer plant. So what makes the ginger beer plant different from water kefir? Well, they are a different, they look different. The grains are a little smaller. Does water <laughs> kefir, do you have to flavor the ginger grain to have it taste like ginger? Yeah. And it, traditionally it's just made with ginger as a ginger beer drink, which is a soda, not, not a highly alcoholic drink, uh, but it's. It's one thing. It's it's sugar, ginger are the main two ingredients. Sometimes lemon juice or otherwise. So why use that versus water kefir grains? Well, I'm using it because my water kefir grains. I think they just sucked. I just don't think they ever took off. I, and and I got them dehydrated. Maybe that had something to do with it. I'm but I, I or maybe I I'm sure that I had something to do with it. But hey, you made an awesome prune juice kefir thing. Yeah, I decided to experiment with that too. That was that does taste pretty good, but it was using for the second stage of fermentation, adding some prune juice to it, some organic prune juice. Hey, it really worked. It tastes really good. It's really kind of weird because it's kind of similar to. It reminds me of almost a little bit of a cream soda type flavor, and I even added a little bit of pime heirloom yogurt into it, drinkable yogurt, and then it really kind of tasted like a cream soda. Still tasted like a prune juice undertone, but it kind of had those similarities to what I remember as a kid drinking a cream soda or a root beer float or something of those kind of reminds me a little bit of it. I'm sure if I had them side by side, it probably wouldn't, but side by side, I'd probably like this a little bit more than high fructose corn syrup, cream syrup, cream soda or whatnot. So it was interesting. Yeah. So I, my grains are not completely dead. Although my water grains are water kefir grains are starting to disintegrate. And I'm trying to save them, but I think they are going away. So well, I might have to. Maybe the prune juice is going to help. The prune juice is in the second fermentation stage, so it's not actually in the oh. with the grains. Oh, never mind. Yeah, but you made the, it really bubbly, though. Yeah, it got really bubbly. So it's it's either this is their last hurrah, and like the the yeasts that came from the last disintegrating grains, like are are completely inside that prune juice thing. And, and which could, I guess, be the case if most of them disintegrated, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily all gone, but that they just all went through the sieve and are in the drink. And that's why that one's super bubbly. Have you looked up ways to regenerate them or is that even an option? Yeah. I've tried, I mean, look, there's different things like eggshells and otherwise to give them more minerals or different such. I don't know. I don't know what I did. I'll try again. Maybe you didn't do anything. Maybe it was just the grains. Yeah, maybe I had crappy grains to start with, but I, I think next time I'm going to try and find someone that has fresh grains and do it that way as opposed to rehydrating grains because, and I'm not saying that it doesn't work to rehydrate them because plenty of people have good results with that, I'm sure. But 
my experience with this ginger beer plant, I got them as fresh grains, non-dehydrated grains, and they have just, they're just like ready to go right away, right out of the package. They've fermented that first brew and it's even not even been the full 10 days that a lot of ginger beer plant recipes take for the first and second uh, fermentation. I'm just in the second stage of fermentation. It's only been a couple days and it's nice and nice and bubbly, nice and gingery. It's very good. I've it, tried it. Yeah, it tastes it tastes awesome. I just I really like these grains. So I mean, I may not even really go into the if these if my water kefir grains disintegrate completely. I but might you should just, keep making the prune water kefir. Well, and I will, then but the I'm ginger. saying I'm saying that I'll do it with with the ginger beer plant because you can just brew sugar water. You don't have to season it with or flavor it with ginger. So why is it called a ginger beer plant? Because it uses different bacteria, specifically Saccharomyces florentinus and Lactobacillus hilgardi. But does it have anything to do with ginger besides that you flavor it with ginger flavors and I make ginger well, beer? This is, these are, this is, this ginger beer plant was traditionally used to make this specific kind of drink as opposed to Tobiko's or water kefir grains, which were used to make sugar water kinds of, and the sparkling juices and oh, okay. whatnot. Okay. Mainly where the tradition comes from, why these different grains formed the way they did, these different scobies. I don't know enough of the history. We'll get into that in probably in a future episode where we'll focus on some of these water kefir and ginger beer plant grains. But I, it's, it's very fascinating. I still need to look into this a lot because it was just one of those things where I kind of read about it and, uh, and, and got inspired to want to try it and contacted the person from the article, Raj from California. And he sent me, sent me grains. He says he does it all the time. So sent him a self addressed stamp envelope and he sent it back with, with fresh grains in it. And so thank you, Raj. And, uh, that's, uh, that's been awesome. And I put in that article in there that I saw about that as well, because I really wasn't that familiar with ginger beer plant. And anytime when I had kind of seen it referenced, they look so similar that I thought they were the same thing, just being used differently. But we'll cover that more in the future. It's, it's, it's interesting though. A little bit of news, really not a whole lot this week, except for one uh, Guinness Book of World Records attempt not sure if it's going to be entered in the Book of World Records, it, but is it? it is the largest ball of mozzarella cheese. How large? I think we're talking around, you know, 300 pounds or so. How large does that actually... You can see some photos at the link in the show notes at firmup.com slash podcast slash 19. I'm just trying to imagine what 300 pounds of cheese in a ball looks like, and I cannot even have... I have no idea. How tall would that be? How tall? Yeah, like how... It looked how, like a you know a couple feet wide and a foot tall or whatnot. I mean, that's it? T- taking multiple, multiple cheesemongers or chefs, not exactly sure. This was a grocery store that was trying to do it in, in Farmington, Utah. There are photos. You can see them kind of trying to haul this big thing. They, they said they're not even sure if the Guinness Book of World Records will accept it because they don't have a category for it, but they're hoping that maybe they will, will accept it and maybe it will inspire other people to make even larger mozzarella balls. How did they put it together? How did they put it together? Yeah, how did they make it into a ball? Well, they made just a huge batch of cheese and kept it all in the same kind of cheesecloth. And, and I'm not exactly sure how they were forming this. They did say in the article that it wasn't the highest quality mozzarella. So it's not like well, yeah, why they could go make... and sell it as um, a nice stretched curd mozzarella. So I'm guessing they're probably not even stretching the curd or anything like that, but it's still interesting, I guess. I'm, I've always been kind of fascinated by the Guinness book of world records. It's not something that really excites me too much, but I guess maybe as a kid, I thought it was kind of cool at one point. I did too, mainly because I think some of the things that people do, I'm just like, for one, why? And so two, the absurdity of it all? Yeah, yeah, that's really mainly what it is. It's kind of like the the random like things that people can accomplish or have the largest of. So Which is it, it it does go to show a little bit of the the curiosity of humans. It's the 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 things that they can get so fixated on and be willing to try to work hard to accomplish. Do, do people get it? I know this is off topic slightly, but do people get a reward if they make it into the book? I don't think so. Just the glory of having the their book. thing and, and only being in the book until it gets, they get beaten. Yeah. Which I'm sure if this gets entered, someone else is going to be inspired. They're going to think that they can make a bigger one or better one. And you know, um, that's the thing though. I feel like there needs to be a multifaceted 
aspect to the Guinness Book of World Records. You have the largest mozzarella cheese ball, but what if you have the largest mozzarella cheese ball that tastes also the best? What if yours mm. is slightly smaller, but it tastes better? Does that deserve a different award or yeah, a different category? Yeah, I think category? you're getting too complicated. See, that's where I think the limitations of the Guinness Book of World Records comes in. Well, it's very simple. Yeah, that's I, I, want, I like to complicate things sometimes, I guess. Which but, also makes me wonder, I know, slightly off topic again, but what? how how do they know that that's the largest cheese ball ever made? We don't. It's kind of like if someone doesn't report it, it's really kind of just... Yeah, and, and in order to be able to be in the Guinness Book of World Records, you have to have a weight machine, otherwise known as a, as, as a what is it called? Scale. A scale, there you go, thank you. Um, get it verified and, or, or certified with a certificate to show that it is accurate down to a certain certain amount. Well, still though, you don't know if there's anyone else out there. Anyway, yeah, you don't. I mean, but it's again, cool. if people that's that's kind of what the Guinness Book of World Records comes down to is the, you you have to be someone that's motivated by getting the world claim for a certain title. So, yes, to a certain extent, yes, we don't know if a larger one's been made. It kind of seems insane that there would be because I I don't know why anyone would do it unless they're going for. Well, that's my thought. It's like why did public... they decide to make it so many pounds? Like where did that number come from? Well, probably just to kind of set start the record off since there isn't any other record for it probably just start it somewhere so that they're not just going to be beat the second year if so someone else decides like, to do it it just exposed cheese slowly fermenting in a ball or rotting no it's in a ball? it was probably well there's different kinds of mozzarella that a person can make you can make a something that's a little bit more involved you know needing the ph meter and needing to stretch the curd and really kind of get the feel down and those are a little bit more complicated there's simpler cheese mozzarella cheeses that can be made and um there's but it's just wondering how are the, they storing it is it going storing bad? it what do you mean if it's in a ball like it's just out in the open air well it's not i'm just curious aged, to know what's so happening to it they you didn't know exactly what they were going to do with it again because it was a lower quality cheese yeah i mean you can't just leave cheese out no they weren't just going to leave it out they were going to see if they're going to sell it or do whatever they're going to do with it but i don't know i they they're okay even if they can't do anything with it because it was the challenge of doing it it's a lot of milk though yeah um, a lot of milk at least it brings attention to the store yeah, I mean, that's obviously probably a lot of it has to do with bringing attention to the chain of grocery stores that, that put this on. Oh, it was a chain of grocery stores? Well, it was one specific grocery store, but I don't even recognize the name of the grocery store. So it doesn't, I, and I I don't have it in my, my notes to be able to say, but it's in Utah. Interesting. We'll see. Maybe it will be accepted by the Guinness World of Rec- World Records, and then maybe you, listener, will decide that you want to try and outcompete that and get your name in the Guinness Book of World Records. I know there's other cheese records. I don't know what they are off the top of my head, but you know, there's different things out there for for what can be considered a record. How do you limit categories in the book? If there are so many, do they just drop some off some years? Couldn't tell you. I guess that's that's a different podcast. I wonder if anyone does a world records podcast of That'd sorts. That'd be kind of cool. We should start one. Sure. Go ahead. <laughs> but there really wasn't a whole lot more in, in the news, really that much more. I, there's not even really that much as a follow-up to last week about the mimolet, the cheese, mited cheese. That, mites? Yes, that, that it is being held. In question, I thought there was something about that the FDA, they made a statement saying that they do not have a, they, they're still allowing that cheese to be imported. So that they're saying that there is no ban on that cheese. That's correct. There is, there, the FDA is claiming that there is no ban on the cheese. They are not claiming whether or not there is actual cheese in custody. Well, yeah. So people are just kind of confused. Yeah, and there's really not a whole lot of coverage about it, so it's still one of those things that's kind of up in the air. But uh, according to the Facebook page for Save the Mimolette, the person that has kind of put that on, um, you know, they posted a video from a French actor, which I do not know that French actor, but I did recognize him. He is in Amelie, that French movie from way back in the day that was all bright and colorful. But uh, he said something in French, which was supposedly having to do with this cheese, but I don't speak French. And the Google translation of the captions 
didn't make any sense at all. So, which they generally don't because yeah, I mean, they do say they're in beta translation. So it, it, it didn't make any sense. Most likely because the original captions were auto generated. So they didn't make sense either. But it's a. It, I mean, maybe they're just questioning the specific vendor. Well, the person that, that did set that up uh, had also stated that they had contacted the distributor or the importer of this cheese. And the the main issue is it's it's not so much for other importers. It's not so much that there is a, since there is no ban, it's the issue of, well, if they import other cheese, other Mimolette cheese, is it going to also be held in custody? Because the issue right now is that they're not able to send it back without that costing a lot of money to send, you know, that that's their options right now, supposedly that their options are to destroy the cheese or, to send it back to Europe, to France. I mean, yeah, it, it is a little confusing because if FDA is saying that they are still allowing the cheese to be imported, then No, they're not is... saying they're allowing the cheese to be imported. They're saying the opposite of that being that there is no active ban on this cheese. Yeah, so, okay, even that, it just seems a little confusing because then why are they holding the cheese? If there's something specifically wrong with it, they should let the seller know so that they can fix well, that. Well, according you to... shouldn't be so just up in the air about what's actually going on so that people, I mean, it makes it difficult for other cheesemakers to know if they should even attempt to import or export cheese to the United States. Well, yeah, they, they, there's, there's a probably much more to it that's not understood or is, is just missing out of this. But yes, according to the original reports, some of that information coming from the importers of the cheese saying that the FDA had told them that the cheese had too high of cheese mite levels and that there's the concern that that's causing allergens. Except that they didn't tell them how much. So that's also... There, there's no quantity of cheese mites that causes the allergens versus does not. So yes, the levels are ambiguous, it seems at this point. Who knows what the real story is behind this? Could be just total miscommunication. Who knows what's going on? But yes, there is the ramifications of even if the cheese is not technically banned, importers and the producers in France are not necessarily going to want to be shifting other large imports into the United States because it may also be held and required to be sent back or destroyed. I mean, right now it's a half ton that's supposedly being held. So that's that's a decent amount of cheese, a decent amount of money. Mm-hmm. Kind of hard other, either way. I mean, sending it back is going to cost a lot of money. Destroying it is going to waste a lot of money and a lot of good cheese. People like their Mimolette. Let them eat their Mimolette. I don't know why they just don't send it back and the seller can then just distribute it in Europe. But but again, I don't really feel yeah. still too comfortable commenting on this because it's just still one of those things that there's still not a lot of coverage on it. There's no, uh, there's been a little bit from, from French websites. There's been a little bit from Yahoo News put something up, but that's about the most um, substantial place that had legit place that I saw that had anything or that I recognized at least. But yeah, there's just not a whole lot of information about it. So again, Mimolette is something that a lot of a cheese that most, a large majority of people in the United States don't know anything about anyway. So it's that's probably why it's not necessarily making it in the mainstream news. Yeah, it's probably a very f- select few that are consuming it and understand. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting though. So I mean, we'll continue to follow that story as it unfolds. If it unfolds, or if it just kind of peters out, we'll let you know that too. Or if it all comes out to be a hoax, which I, I, I at this point it doesn't seem like it is. But same time, I just I want to know why there's not more information about it. Now there's not really any other news except for one thing that I'm excited for, which is Michael Pollan's new book that will be coming out tomorrow. Oh, sweet! So. It comes out on, on Tuesday, April 23rd, um, which, yes, we record this. The day pro- before. Yeah, so. So, so you have two days. You got really excited there for a second. I did. I was like, wait a minute, tomorrow's Tuesday? Yeah, no, we, we published this podcast Monday after. mornings, but um, it's recorded on Sunday. Sunday so there, there's a little peek behind the curtain of, of how Firm Up works. But Yes, it's it's going to come out. If you're listening to this on release day, it's going to come out tomorrow. If you're listening to this later in the week. It's already come out. People go get it. Yeah, go get the book. If you haven't already pre-ordered it. I got mine pre-ordered through Amazon. It's going to arrive on Tuesday. 
Are you going to read it on Tuesday too? Have it all. I'm going to. You have the whole day. I'm going to. I've just got it all blocked off my schedule. Not going to do anything but read that book. No, it's not that. I mean, I'm. I'm thinking that it's. I like Michael Pond's other books. Me too, very much. They're easy reads, not in the sense of that they don't aren't full of information and things to think about, but they're just so well written that it's not like reading some of the textbooks that I read on fermentation, which can get a little dry at times. But so fascinating. It's just I have to use more of my brain. Use well, yeah, I've got to use more of my imagination to make it so exciting. But whereas he kind of just makes things exciting. Yeah, he's I feel. by far probably one of my favorite authors too. Yeah, I was really thinking back to like two of the the really formative speakers, Omnivores. players, people that have influenced the way that I eat, and also to a certain extent the the way I lead my life. And you know obviously to come to where I have today has come from all kinds of different experiences that I've experienced through my life. But when I really look back, it started with Sander Katz, which then opened up into Michael Pollan. Makes sense. And with Michael Pollan, it wasn't that I think even the Omnimore's dilemma was out at the the point when, when I, I read his, his other book, the botany of desire. And so that was kind of my introduction to him, even though, I felt for a lot of people, it's the omnivore's dilemma that, that has done it. But I really, I just, I, I liked how he approached subjects and, you know, he kind of has his way of breaking things into fours, I think is the way he likes to, to break things up into four categories. I, I like it, but yeah, I was, I was looking back and I was like, yeah, those, those two people really influenced a lot of the way that I, I view food and the direction that I've gone. But this cause they're both so awesome. Yes. And, and I mean, I, I feel the same way. I, I completely agree. And that's what was so great, amazingly cool to see that connection kind of morph together because food and fermentation really have so much to do with each other anyway. But, but here we had last year, the Art of Fermentation book by Sander Katz, which if you have not read, you really should read if you're listening to this podcast. But I'm assuming if you are, are a regular listener of this podcast, you probably probably are reading it or have read it. But that book, the foreword is by Michael Pollan. That connection was made most likely, I'm assuming through uh, Sander Katz being one of the people that Michael Pollan spoke with in writing his new book. Because he has a fermentation section in the book. A section on fermentation, which he's referring to as earth. He's kind of breaking this up into fire, water, air, earth. Makes sense. Makes and sense. And it's the earth. It's the microbes. It's the, the the he he also has a section on air, which is more the yeasts in the back, uh, the br- uh, baking. I, I believe I could have this mixed up because I haven't read the book. This is just going off of different articles, which you can find in our show notes. But it's uh, he so he has baking in there too. So again, more fermentation. So the, the book has a, for a book. If if I didn't say it yet, the title of the book is cooked, and it's uh. I think it's a, it's a, a natural history of transformation is, is the, that's the subtitle. Full title. Yeah. And so for one transformation, I mean, that's definitely what fermentation has a lot to do with. And so we're really focused on the fermentation side of things, but there's been a lot of articles that have been coming out, which tend to happen when a big name author comes out with a, a new book and, you know, it's gotten me excited about it. I will not deny that, you know, maybe I'm a little bit of a, Michael Pollan fanboy, but I, you know, still try to take an open mind to it and not just digest everything he has to say. Like, I'm, but I'm he brings look at up it. good points. He, he brings up good points. He argues both sides, even though he has a side that he obviously is on. He doesn't just disregard the opposing side. He brings out the good points in that side too, as to why someone would maybe want to be on the other side and how it could be benefiting them in that in 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 the short period of time i guess not it's short term versus long term i just i like that he doesn't just ignore the the other side he and even though it is i feel like an opinionated he i mean it's difficult because i feel like you, you're reading his opinions but at the same time they're facts he brings into you know the research is done and well, his it's opinions just, aren't fact but the- it's just the way he writes it's just so well done i i just I feel like I have never read something that is arguably controversial or is controversial. Just 
that isn't, I feel like so one-sided all the time, you know? And so you're saying that some of the things that you read about food or any other political issue or controversial issue sometimes seems so one-sided that even if you lean more towards that side, sometimes it just gets a little old and dry. Well, and, and it's not even that, and that. Tur- it's off, just, I don't kind of. even, well, yeah, it's kind of like, I understand if you feel this way, but why do you feel that way? Give some opposing views as to why someone want to feel the other way. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he, he's not just going around bashing people that choose to live a certain way that isn't necessarily the in the best interest of the earth of you know of hum, of us. Um, but- Which it, it, he is still. It is still. You know his opinion. I mean, yes, not all his. Yeah, of opinions. course, yeah, and I and I and I like that he's always optimistic, or he doesn't just kind of. I don't feel after I read his books, I don't feel. You know, and I don't feel the way like, oh, we're just going downhill. This is it for us. Even though I personally sometimes feel that way, it's very discouraging. It's like, why, why are we in this place? Well, how did we get here? How, why won't this change? He, if after reading his book, I, I feel optimistic, and it, it's not even if it's nothing's really changing. Just how he points out, oh, well, things can't keep going this way. It's just not sustainable. Something's going to change. I kind of say a lot of his points, he does come, he's not just looking at problems, he's looking at solutions, but not necessarily, I wouldn't say always specific solutions. I mean, it's more general or soft solutions, philosophical solutions of sorts, things that get people thinking and develop the conversation more. And that's what he's doing here with Cooked from everything that I've been able to follow about it so far, it's like that he wasn't even cooking very much. He was looking at all these aspects of food and the food system and all the food that we eat, but he admits himself he was not cooking very much or fermenting very much more specifically. And you know, so it, it is very interesting because the idea of cooking has changed throughout history or well, recent modern history because you know, it's, it has, to a certain extent, become drudgery in a lot of people's minds. That's it's like you it's, could go anywhere and get food. You, you don't can go have anywhere to think and get about food. it. You know, it's it's not necessarily. It's it's one of those things where, especially for when it was more stereotyped uh, towards one gender. I mean, being the female in the kitchen in in, in the United States. I mean, there were, It was kind of a revolution in itself at that point in the sense of of women getting out of the kitchen doing more for the like at that point it made more sense maybe for women to be getting out of the kitchen and in and, and the large corporations bought into that as well i mean kfc had big billboards that uh, according to michael Pollan that said women's liberation um if you eat kfc you're liberating yourself as a woman because you are getting out of the kitchen and not cooking hey and those corporations are very smart why not well, yeah, and and you know, so there's there's a lot of there's an NPR um, little six minute thing that's in the show notes, and uh, there's there's an article in the New York Times from uh, by Mark Bittman that that writes about it too. The the thing that I I kind of liked what what he was saying was that the seven most famous words in the food movement are the, this this overreaching thing that Michael Pollan is definitely a part of is that you know eat food not too much mostly plants. A lot of people have heard that. If, if you read yes. anything Michael Pond, that's like the thing that that's his his slogan. And so Mike uh, Bittman is saying to, to that he might want to add three more words to that slogan and cook them, you know, to so that that concept of spending that time, what may sometimes feel like drudgery, spending the time in the kitchen, cooking and fermenting food. Well, I, f- I, I think then, you know, fermentation is kind of like a if people don't find time to even just cook a basic meal, they're sure is not going to find any time to ferment things. So fermentation has gotten, I feel like even more so forgotten, especially by the current generation. I mean, people just don't even register that pickles are fermented and they're not in the grocery store. So fermentation is even way beyond cooking. If, I mean, if people, yeah, I mean, I, I, I know people and even myself, I'm not the greatest cook and I get very frustrated, but um, so it's easy to just want to go to a restaurant or so many cheap food. It's so many cheap meals these days that cooking even seems like it'd be almost more expensive if you know you want to make a full meal. Um, 
so people aren't going to even think of fermentation. That's just like, that's asking for a whole lot of work that apparently the society today doesn't have time for. Well, you see pockets of it in all different kinds of things. You see pockets of people when they take things as being more a leisure or a pleasure or a hobby or different things like that. You see a lot of amateur cooks in their homes, amateur chefs. You ha- you see people that are listening to uh, all the people listening to this podcast, you know, that are passionate or excited or at least interested in fermented foods. These kind of things take hold because of their hobbies, their things of but interest. But the thing that intrigues me the most is fermentation, I, I think, is just even easier than cooking. Well, it, There's it is not in that a lot much of ways. to it. You, it. It sure takes time thinking ahead, like, okay, how many weeks will I have to ferment this? Do I have the space, the temperature? But then once you actually get think about it, you put it in a jar or however and just let it be. There's then, a lot of uncertainty, especially when someone's starting out, just like with cooking or anything else. Like cooking can seem like a very specific thing or, or baking, I would say even more specifically, like, so all the stuff you're doing with, with, uh, experimenting with bread baking, there's so many unknown things and things to learn. And but especially, I'm, but that's not stopping me. I'm like, sure. I don't know if this loaf of bread is even being done properly, but I still finish it. It's just, well, yeah. And, like, and that, if I never go through with it, I'm never going to understand if I did something correctly or incorrectly. And I still don't know if I'm doing it correctly, but if I like it, I don't care. But what got you excited to start doing sourdough fermentation? Because mainly because I feel like it is difficult to find good bread out these days out in the store. Um, I feel like I honestly don't even know. I, I haven't looked, but I don't even know where in Madison I can find good ferment, like long, longer fermented breads. There, there are. A I, I'm shops, sure there are, but it's just like. For it's you, just, it's, it's more work to go out and find those it, shops it, almost, and the but, different sides of town than make it yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's something that I think for me, that's, that's why I'm excited about it is because it's, it's difficult to find. And plus I love bread. And so for me, like in order for me to be really passionate about something, I really have to love it. Um, so, and I think that's probably why some of the other things I've done, you know, it's kind of like I, I go through phases like. You know, my even with kombucha, even though I love kombucha, it's kind of like I go through a phase where I'm actively making it, which it is fermenting right now. But then, um, then I stop for a while, then go back to it. Bread, I just love bread, and so, and it's delicious. And um, probably that's probably one of it. but with even with my sourdough starter, it's just like, okay, it says it should be smelling this way. I should be seeing this, and I'm like, I think I I see bubbles. I think it smells like ripe sweet apples um or um sour apples or however i mean there are the descriptions to kind of guide me through as to if if, to kind of make sure i'm on the right track with my starters um but even then i'm like okay i think it's right i'm just kind of gonna assume it is and um and so yeah well yeah and but that's you have so your interest seems more in the fact that you like sourdough bread and Yes. So, and people like food. I know if you were going to go with that story of what people aren't interested, I understand that, but people generally enjoy eating food. No, I was, I was talking, uh, so for you, it's more the motivation of you like the way the food tastes. For me, I like the DIY aspect of things. I mean, I've done do it yourself projects that don't make sense. In, in in the sense of specialization or my time. Yes, you have. I have witnessed. Where I spend maybe more money than I would if I was paying someone else to do it. Mm-hmm. Or I am, you know, sometimes rationalizing as in, well, if I do it myself, I will not only learn a new skill, I get Which to fulfill that curiosity. But at the same time, I can use higher quality parts or or ingredients be it food or that's building. true with your yogurt you know i can i can milk. use yeah i can do higher quality pieces and 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 learn something new at, at the same time and and that's just for myself that's where that curiosity comes in and that's why i like to ferment all kinds of different things even things that i don't have not acquired in taste for yet like natto fermented soybeans smell the first batch that i made smelled like manure it's like for me i want to continue trying to do that not so much because i like the flavor of it now i think that i will grow to like it because taste is an acquired thing and it's really but why force yourself to like because anything like that it's like coffee is an acquired taste it has its benefits it has its things that once you unlock the pleasure of the taste then the taste can go through the roof and and next week but when you say unlock you mean like let me try 10 times to 
kind of make myself like it. Not it's not about me acquired taste. Yes, okay. So making making a person like See, something. I'm, so. I'm not like that. For me, it's like either I like it or I don't like it. But it's um okay. But you oh but I okay. So acquired taste starts out. You know, okay. So I'm I don't know in in natto for example, but it's an acquired taste not for plain natto. It's it's for natto mixed with seaweed and and uh, hot mustard and you know maybe some some rice in there and different things like that so it's not like it's a plain natto but i'm sure there are people that can even enjoy just a plain natto i don't know Uh, as much but if you talk with coffee most people aren't starting with just black black coffee double espresso you know they're they're starting with milk with cream or sugar or some other thing that makes it more palatable but then some people I would say evolve uh, transition. transition is probably a, a, a less judgmental term of of they 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 acquire a taste for that bitter the bitter chemicals in that those flavors because it unlocks a whole other world in coffee that otherwise would yeah, not be but coffee has to be roasted and made right in order i feel like to fully enjoy the just the plain black yeah and as a little foreshadowing for next week we're going to do a whole episode on coffee and really look at the aspects of of coffee and where it where the fermentation actually takes place or when it oftentimes doesn't so kind of bring some clarification to coffee is oftentimes touted as being a fermented food but where does the fermentation take place and and when doesn't it in certain different coffees. So we're really going to focus on that a lot more next week, but yeah, just thinking about it right now, just coffee is one of those things. We're just talking about a definite acquired taste and the taste profile. Again, not focusing on the fermentation versus non-fermentation flavors of it, but it's one of those foods or or drinks or however you want to categorize it, that, that has a very acquired taste. And I think it's worth acquiring a taste for coffee. I'm not personally drinking coffee right now, but that's for caffeine reasons. And, 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 I personally, though, find coffee to be a, a high quality coffees, you know, that those artisanal roasted coffees the where the, everything from, you know, seed to cup is just the care. You can start to taste that or you can taste the different small things in it. And I think that those those kind of experiences are kind of for me, those are really exciting. And that's where it comes in. The taste comes in. But then there's the DIY aspect of something like coffee as well, because I can get into I can get into the knowledge of it because there's countless. Uh, yeah, you got me into roasting my own coffee. Yeah, and then roasting it, and you know the roasting of the coffee. There, there's the simple roasting of the coffee where it's just for simply to get a, it's a conduit to making but coffee. Seriously, even that, like just a simple roast. I'm because I'm by no means an expert. Oh, it's so much better. Than purchasing even well, that's a the better freshness. coffee. You can in make the... some bad roasted coffee though, too. Um, really, I, I, I feel like it's hard to make it taste terrible unless you just burn it. I mean, like that. Well, that's one way. But... Um, but like if it's roasted and not burned, it's just so good. It's delicious, and it doesn't take that much work. I think um, a lot of what you're tasting there is the freshness, as opposed to the, the freshness. And the but then the freshness to... also makes me realize the flavor of it and. Um, it's not just that one stale taste that I feel like, unfortunately, so much of the population is experiencing, especially people that love Starbucks. Please. Well, there's, there, there's, it, the other thing with, it's interesting with taste is that it's that acquired taste can also get de-acquired or I mean, I guess, but I think, but that's also probably the thing. It's like people that have started drinking coffee early on acquired that burnt, um, stale coffee taste. They don't. To them, that's just the acquired taste that they've learned to like, and so they enjoy it now. And to me, though, it's such a simple kind of boring kind of thing. Like stale coffee or burnt coffee only has so many flavors, and it's not. Well, yeah, really, we have to realize I people like, that don't think about it in any other way, and that's all they've known. It's. I mean, my parents drink the most disgusting Turkish coffee. I've so ever, yeah, so we're talking. Actually, about, it's probably no. I would still say Starbucks is worse than what they do, but but yeah, I mean, it's no, just. No, I would not say. I would, oh, I, I, you're being a little too hard on Starbucks. It's not as bad. As, I I just never. I've had such terrible experiences with Starbucks. Like, I it's not because I'm one of those people that's like I'm against Starbucks. It's really has. I mean, I I do enjoy their unhealthy, probably chemically infused um, chocolate chip frapp, frappuccinos. I mean, I haven't had one probably in like. A year, but occasionally, no. It's it's really not that I'm trying to be a person. You actually that, drink those? 
I've not, no, I, I don't go to Starbucks, but like if I am out with a friend that oh, does, okay. like I, that's the thing I'll get because it's more like a dessert. I don't get anything really coffee because I just, but no, it's, I'm, what I'm trying to say is like, I'm not trying to be that person that's just dissing Starbucks because I'm trying to be that kind of in that club that's just against Starbucks. It's really not that. It's just, I have tried numerous times um, and, and not by choice. A lot of times if I'm a guest at someone's house and, and they've just drink Starbucks, they bring home Starbucks coffee. It's so difficult to swallow. Like there have been those times where I'm like, I just need caffeine. And at that point I'm not, I mean, obviously I wouldn't drink it, but it's just, it's hard for me to drink it. I don't know what it is about it. I think it's in that medium place where I think even at, at that point, Folgers would probably taste better. I'm not, I'm being no, serious you, you when I say that. a little too harsh. I'm, but that's my, my experience, probably because it's just so hard for me to drink I think it. some of that is just in your mind. It's not. Because, okay, so there's a... Because there were a, times where I didn't even know it was Starbucks and I, and the minute I tried it, I, I just, I can, it, it just has that really strong so you, Okay, so that's a personal opinion. Don't, you don't like that, that, uh, yeah, and I'm, that I am, burnt I'm, taste. That's I don't think they, they don't have necessarily a stale taste unless you're buying it in the store. But that, that charred taste is that Charbucks yeah. taste. But they're... Again, we'll get it more into coffee next week. And uh, but it it sounds like though there's there are different things. It sounds like you could probably acquire a taste for burnt coffee. Yes, you could, as many other people have. But you're saying like so that's interesting where some of that taste comes in, in the sense of we, we can get sensitized to certain flavors and we can get desensitized to certain flavors. So if part of acquiring a, a, a taste for something is probably desensitizing to things like you could probably acquire a taste for burnt coffee because you would get kind of desensitized to that burnt flavor that right now you don't really like. But then there's sensitizing to things where that's also part of the acquiring of the taste is getting an acquired taste for higher grade coffees, ones that take a little bit more of a uh, an artistic approach to roasting and growing the coffees and, and brewing as well. And, and those coffees, it's a sensitization of the taste as opposed to desensitization. It's like getting sensitized to all the different floral citrus notes or otherwise the caramely notes or anything else that might show in the nose or in the taste of the coffee is those, those are the kind of things it's it's fascinating how acquired has multifacets to it. It's not only acquiring to get used to a taste that tastes bad, but also acquiring in the sense of getting sensitized to the nuances of those flavors that were missing when a person was just had that blurring obviousness of, I don't like that taste of that. I wonder, I'm trying to, like, do you remember the when you, because I don't have a memory of when I actually started drinking coffee and when I started enjoying it. Like, I don't have a memory of just trying and not liking it, but I know I didn't drink coffee when I was really in high school at all. So it started in college sometime. I'm just, I cannot recall like how that started. Like, yeah, how... I, I remember I was drinking coffee in, in high school, and but I was drinking it with just those little, be like... little creamers or whatnot and different stuff like that. So, I mean, it was cheap, like uh, the deli coffee type stuff anyway. So it wasn't like it was anything yeah, fancy. Yeah, I don't have a memory. But yeah, I mean, going, looking a little bit more just at, at food in general and, and the things that, that again, I guess this, where this trajectory towards into coffee kind of happened, it was looking at the reasons why people are motivated to do things. And it seems like this book, at least from all the, the articles and different things that are out so far in, in the, the previews of, of the first chapter or different things of, of Michael Pollan's book cooked it's it looks like he's taking a more philosophical motivation standpoint of and, and political standpoint of like making a difference in a person's life based around food you know and and so looking at i mean because we may we can make time for anything that we're interested in and for some people it's going to be interesting they like the taste of that food and they want to figure out they, they either don't have ready access to it or they just feel like they can make it better or like someone like myself who definitely appreciates the taste and definitely wants to to get the highest quality that I can and and sometimes that means making it at home for the well, freshest having the freedom to but, uh, but also it. I really like that that DIY aspect of just food in general of of creating something because I mean I worked in restaurants for 10 
plus years as, as a waiter. And, you know, I didn't really eat out a whole lot. And part of that is because I spent so much time in, in restaurants, which is the total opposite for other people. Like some people, if they spend time in restaurants, they want to go out to other nice restaurants. But for myself, it's like, I spent so much time in restaurants that I just didn't really, wasn't motivated to go somewhere that reminded me of work. Makes sense. I feel like I would probably feel the same way. But, but for, for other people, it's a complete opposite. But for me, it's like, I would rather be inspired by the things I'm serving to other people and try and, you know, on, on some scale in the back of my mind, be kind of motivated by those kind of things to create at home occasionally. But I, so I think people come at, at making food in different ways. And, um, but, but he is really pushing that people find plenty of time for leisure activities for, you know, internet and, uh, exercise as, as one thing. like, that's one thing for me, exercise. I like to get my exercise through things I do. I don't really have that much motivation to make time to exercise to go out of my way to do activities specifically for exercise. I'd rather do activities that involve using my body that involve, but it's not just, I don't, I don't want to go to a gym or do different things like that. And even when it comes to that, I'd rather DIY it myself and not go to a gym and just do it at home. And, um, no, but so, so there are things that I don't value as uh, in the same sense. But that's kind of that, that mindset of, for, for me, ex- exercise, it's like I can, you know, do other activities uh, to, get, to get that. Um, but like, so some people are going to feel that same way about cooking, though. They're going to be like, well, that's like my exercise. Like, I'd rather exercise than be at home cooking. And so much of that seems to come from the looking at what we've talked about before and that balance of specialization, human specialization and that – and – and generalization how much should we or not should but how much are humans what's the fine line what's that fine line between the benefits that we get from not having to understand how to make a a phone but then we can have an iphone or an android phone or any other kind of phone that a person wants you can just have that without having to understand how it's built you know they're not getting into that but there is the political side of that too and that's kind of what he's what he's talking about is is there's there is in every action that we take as consumers if you want to use that word i don't really don't like that word but as consumers every action everything that we do and everything that we choose not to specialize in or know anything about we are voting we are making a choice and that's his argument it seems that we are by choosing well and history shows that we when we let certain things be specialized the path is going down. So technology has been just only improving and the way we live our life has changed drastically in the last hundred years because of that, because of specialization. Same goes for food though. And this is just my opinion and my theory, but we've kind of let corporations take over and this kind of shows where it's leading us, which is not in a good place. Well, okay. So, so environmentally like, or so health wise, is history, that what you're referring to? Well, no, I'm just referring to like history kind of shows what, when specialization makes sense versus when it doesn't and how it's affecting our lives. Yeah, but you could take this argument in many different directions. It's not so clean cut, but this well, is it's just... it's not clean cut. I'm not saying it is clean cut, but it's just that this is a rough, easy way to just kind of look at the big picture, just kind of go down the, like, the timeline, the history of, of this and and food and and so far if the way things have been going with food have only been getting worse not necessarily better of course things are changing because things were going down the wrong path well i wouldn't say like there's there are benefits to the industrialization of food and one of those is not i would not think be taste and necessarily health but there are yeah just feeding yourself is is one of the the benefits and and so that's one of the challenges of um to to buying not necessarily even organic, but just buying more expensive food that's that's healthier and and you know buying the fresh vegetables and fruits and meats and, and you know well, and, buying, and cheeses and all those kind of things. Buying food does that make sense? Buying no, it does like, not make sense. Buy everything from scratch and then make well, it you, yourself. You you make things from scratch. I don't think you buy things from scratch. I guess, but do you know what I'm trying to say? Well, just buying the fresh ingredients and then make it into a things food. or fermenting things. Yeah. Is, Which I is, think that that's that's the important it, it, thing that does cost more, and that's part of the argument against cooking and fermenting at home. Is it? Well, for fermentation especially, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of patience, which isn't necessarily uh, 
conducive to our societal but standards now, but but it's looking, not more. It does take more time than just going to the store and buying well, sure, sauerkraut. Yes, but that's the whole issue that we just discussed with time is like you know people will prioritize what they find important so whoever finds food important can arguably find time to spend 15 minutes to prepare a kimchi jar and let it sit and ferment well yes people can find time but the rationalization of it's cheaper for them to go buy that kimchi jar than it is for them to make it and the idea behind that does make sense if someone's making more than 20 dollars an hour financially, it probably makes more sense for them to spend another hour at work than it does. And there was an article recently in, in the Wall Street Journal that uh, Michael Pollan referred to in, in one of his interviews about how, you know, it, it for, for many people, it makes more sense to spend another no, hour at work. And then for strictly rationalizing it in the sense of money. Sure. Money-wise, yes. What about diversity in our lifestyle? Sure, that's one argument. There's I mean, the connecting yeah. with nature. There's the the environmental yeah. issues or the otherwise. relationship you have with the family or the people you cook with. There's so many more benefits to it than just eating good food and being healthy. It's more than that. It's just the overall relationship with everything that requires us to make that food at home. But many people do have that argument of it's it's probably not a good use of their time. Is it for it's how is that a good argument though? If you're going from the financial side of things, money Okay, so only if you're time. going from financial side of things because for the most part, I, you know, I It's going to be cheaper. I don't mind my job, but I don't necessarily need to do it 40 hours a week if I don't have to. Well, yes, but if you spend instead less time at work and more time in the kitchen, you're not necessarily you're 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 not it's not going to be necessarily positive in that So sense. you're saying it's only works if people are really focused on money and financials. No, I think people for a lot of different reasons. I mean, just in the sense of why should I care about cooking? Because it seems well, exactly. that it's so much easier well, to go and buy point. something. This is this. I, I I think this discussion is really more regarding people that do care about food. Yeah, people that don't care, they're not going to care, and that's fine. That's completely fine. It's it's a personal choice. It's a personal preference. Well, it, it is that for the money side of things, it really is that argument for the division of labor. So when you're talking about dividing up labor, it makes more sense to have to pay someone else who can specialize in something. Economically, yes. Yes. And so, you know, but that doesn't work for everything even, in life. Even Michael Pollan. You can't in, specialize to I mean, that's kind of I mean, if you really take it at that far, it's kind of like I don't know. I'm I'm trying to think of some extreme example like um I'm going to specialize in being someone's husband. I mean, I I know this is ridiculous, but like there's you can't you can't keep going that. I mean, you there there has to be a fine line between where you specialize and where you don't. I don't think so. I think for a lot of well, parts and, of... and history shows that specializing in food isn't necessarily benefiting us in many. It's it's actually a big disadvantage in many ways than it is in, be, well, in benefiting okay, so us. Okay, so in some ways you can say that, but at the same time, there are plenty of good restaurants, plenty of good uh, producers of fermented foods that you can go and buy those foods. And for some people that are making enough money, it still makes more sense for them to spend that money and buy those. I agree with you there. I'm just, just really quickly, my, what I'm trying to say is that there are people, enough people that do care about what they eat and it's just, you know, people that seek recipes and better ways to cook, I guess just have them exposed to that whole idea of what cooking really should be because there are so many people that just don't think about this. And I know I've, I've covered this before. They don't really think about um, cooking and what really what it means or, or food and what real food means. And so just by sharing this type of information, they could kind of change their perspective on what cooking really is. I mean, it. It could be a fun family thing to do. Well, and, um, I, and, and I, yes, there's there's that base level of things, which is what I'm interested in. And it sounds like you are to a certain extent connecting with family, connecting with friends, connecting with that natural aspect of creating something and creating food that then we digest. And so there there is that aspect to it. And, and from everything it seems from the articles that I've been reading with the Michael Pollan new book is he's pushing it even farther than that. I mean, he's talking about... Um, that division of labor. And he's talking about how in our complex economy, it does have benefits, but it also obscures the lines of connection. And so our, our connection with our responsibilities 
and the choices and the connection to the choices that we make. Um, you know, so all of these acts that we take or don't take in the kitchen or in the restaurant or otherwise, they have real world consequences. And so the things he's going into are, you know, the environmental uh, aspects of, you know, being conscious of what choices do what and of the health aspects and of all different kinds of issues that a person is making in the small acts we do, they get all convoluted and confused in our complex system of that division of labor with everyone being specialized, it's much more difficult to focus on all those different aspects of the world. And it does seem like uh, it's beyond me to a certain extent, if I think about it in the specialization sense, because because everyone's specializing in anything specific though. Well, you enjoy, but, but that's, but, but if I take it in a specialized aspect, if someone else is doing everything for me, then it does get confusing, you know? And so his urging seems to be, and again, haven't read the book, but like from just reading these different articles, uh, that are leading up to it, you know, it's by, by choosing to cook, by choosing to ferment, it's, it's a protest against specialization and not that there's something against specialization in in total, but it's that protest against specialization and the rational, the total rationalization of life because things in life don't make sense. It's not all going to add up. It's not necessarily going to what saves us the most money. Isn't necessarily going to be the same rationalization that I'm going to want if I'm interested in focusing on family or health or otherwise. And so that's where trying to rationalize everything in life doesn't necessarily make sense. Sure. It probably doesn't make sense for me to be trying to learn the processes of making cheeses when I can get some amazing cheeses out there. But part of the process of connecting with understanding how cheese is made helps me understand and appreciate and acquire a deeper taste for cheeses that are made by someone who specializes in them. Completely agree with you there. And and so like by by sweating, by working hard, by going what some people would call drudgery and I call excitement and curiosity, by going through those kind of things. Well, yes, yeah, sometimes when I'm chopping cabbage or chopping other vegetables, sometimes it gets a little boring. Sometimes it's nice to automate the process or, or not have to use a chef's knife. But it's... Oh. It's the... This is I. Before we end, though, I I do want you to share the the thing about bread that you shared with me. I hope this is not something you shared in the last podcast. But what do you want about the bread? I don't know. Um, in the sixties, they were advertising Wonder Bread as the bread that's never been touched by a human hand. Just the irony of. Well, yeah. There's that 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 that, that, that has many social political reasons behind why at a different point before the industrial or or at the beginning of the industrialization of bread, that there was that, that concept that, you know, something something not touched by human hands was better than that, which is kind of in um, revision now with people being interested in focusing on, you know, where's their food coming from? What, uh, who are the farmers, you know, who are the, the bakers and the cooks and the fermenters? I mean, who are these people and understanding the stories behind it? You know, people kind of want that human connection again. And I'd say the kitchen is another place to do that. And with fermentation, especially it's, it's, it's a way it, who cares if it doesn't provide financial value or rationalization? I I mean, yes, that does make a difference. It does. It does matter. But to a certain extent, fermented foods are one of those things where it takes time, but it doesn't take that much time. And so the value in making them is not only financial savings. Making yogurts at home is just a one simple concept behind that. It's much cheaper to make yogurt at home than it is to, to buy it. So so you do even get a little bit of of that rationalization of it is cheaper for me to make it myself because it's so simple, especially some of these heirloom yogurts that don't take any work. I mean, uh, if you're dealing with a Bulgarian yogurt or a store-bought yogurt, sure, you're having to warm that up and do everything to it. That takes a lot of work. But just scooping some, backslopping some yogurt from a previous batch of heirloom yogurt into fresh heirloom yogurt, that's super simple. And these are the things that I think sometimes get convoluted too, is that some of these things do save more money than, you know, than, than, than spending even more time at work. I mean, okay. So yes, there is that aspect of, it's like, if someone's making a lot of money, it probably makes a lot more sense for them. Even five minutes, they're going to be making more in those five minutes than they would be saving in making their own yogurts. Sure. There is that argument, but then who cares about the financial things at some point, stepping back from that and looking at fermented foods as a connection with our microbial ancestors, with 
nature with the wild side of life. I don't know what you want to call it, but, uh, but to me, uh, fermentation is something where I'm able to connect with something on a different level than I can. If I just go buy some pickles or some sauerkraut or some kimchi at the store, sure that flavors can taste good, especially if it's from a small scale producer that is producing live and non-pasteurized ferments. And, and sometimes I can appreciate the flavors and the hard work that goes into those. But at the same time, it's, it, there's something about making it at home. And I think a lot of people who appreciate different things, um, you know, even people that appreciate cheese, like I was talking about a, a lot of people that get into cheese or, or sell cheese, you know, at some point become interested in at least experimenting with making some cheese at home. I think there is something to that acquiring a taste for something, acquiring knowledge for something. Part of that comes in with dipping our toes, at least into the making process to understand where, even if we don't spend all the time there. So in cooking or fermenting, well, even I if would not, argue that affects the flavor of the food too. Affects the flavor as in our understanding of the flavor? Yeah. I mean, if you eat something and you're not necessarily familiar with the process, it's not the same kind of experience as if you just made it and you understood everything that went in it. And you might be tasting the subtle flavors of whatever encompasses that specific food. Um, but my original thought with the, the bread not being touched by human hands and then now that we are seeking that more connection with food, it's in, it'd be it'll be interesting to see where we are, you know, 50 years, 50 years from today as to what we find good or beneficial or, um, just something, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's obviously some cyclical aspect to these different things that people may not be as, uh, as motivated or interested in food at some point. And, but right now it seems that more people are, and if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are in some aspect as well, but it, it it's, it's very fascinating things to at least consider. And again, Michael Pollan's book's coming out on Tuesday. So if you're, if you're interested in anything that we've discussed today, um, then definitely check out that book. Um, and, and I did put, and really do check out his other books too. I mean, they're, they're amazing. Yeah. I, I, mean, I would it, argue that they, that, um, Omnivore's Dilemma is probably what clicked for me in my, in my life. Um, and just, it was pretty much the turning point as to how I viewed the world. Honestly, it changed my whole perception of everything. I felt like I was completely just blinded before that. I know. And that's, now you see. Well, it sounds cheesy, I admit. But I mean, really, it was kind of, so this is really like what happens to the meat I eat and how the corporations control our food. And like, I didn't know any of that before that. I mean, it really changed my life. Sure. It and, and maybe did. some of this new stuff will change the way you ferment foods. It will inspire you differently. So if you're interested in the general, um, story of, of cooked, that's one thing, but again, there's going to be a whole, whole section on fermentation. That's why I would recommend it to anyone, even though I haven't read it yet. I'm really excited to see it. And I'd hope this, this episode didn't feel like it was, you know, trying to, to push you into buying the book um, because that's definitely not our, our purpose. It's, it's more, I I'm fascinated by the ideas that come up thinking about these kind of things. And this is the kind of stuff that keeps me awake at night, thinking about all the, the different sides and different aspects of food and fermentation and the, the greater world at, at large and, and what motivates people to either do these things or not do these things. So, so for me, this is something I'm, I'm very passionate about and it's tell. not specifically a, topic in the sense of our other episodes of looking at uh fish sauce or lemons or or yogurts or sauerkrauts so definitely let us know uh, you know you know I don't, I don't think you'll ever be able to completely get me to stop talking about some of these more philosophical sides of, and, and bigger picture kinds of things but but let us know if this is the last two episodes have been a little bit about more food in, in general and, and definitely how it, it it connects with fermentation but uh, let us know and give us feedback if, if you're interested in these kind of things, or if you really would like us to keep it a little bit more focused on, on, on specific fermented things all the time. And, you know, I mean, there, we'll, we'll probably find a, a happy balance, but we'd like some feedback on that either direction, whether this is still of interest to listen to and kind of think about these things yourself, or if, you know, you're more listening to these podcasts because you want to, to know more historical facts about specific or, or scientific sides of, or how to's of making specific things. And you can get in contact with us on, at, you can send an email at podcast at firmup.com. You can find us on Twitter at firmup on Facebook, facebook.com slash firmup. And, you know, really 
if you disagree with anything that we have to say too, and our, our different thoughts, we'd love to hear our what you have to say. Minds. Yes. Our opinionated Probably more and fermented more minds. So than yours, but. Yeah. I'm, I, I'd say in some ways I'm a little bit more open, but than than you are but that's that's okay we need we need all people in this world those that are highly opinionated those that are completely open those that don't care i mean it all balances together and ferments into a big boils into a a a big ferment of excitement so if you would like to send us feedback please do otherwise we will be back here next week talking about coffee and how it's fermented when it's not and anything and everything in between about probably way more information that you wanted about coffee, but maybe it'll inspire you to be a little bit I'm more excited. I'm super excited about this one because I love coffee. Yeah. So, and, and, and it will be also interesting because you will see that maybe it's a little bit more off topic than it would seem, but hey, coffee is touted as being fermented so often that, you know, we're just going to dig in and, and see that, so that you have a better understanding of why that's somewhat true and why some, in some ways it's not really. See you back next week. Firm up.